Oh yeah, I got the perfect song for the kids to sing. And all my people that's drug dealing just to get by, stack your money till it gets sky high. To make it past 25 Jokes on you, we still alive Throw your hands up in the sky And say we don't care what people say If this is your first time hearing this You are about to experience something so cold man. We never had nothing handed Took nothing for granted Took nothing from no man Man, I'm a Welcome, everyone, to episode 13 of The George Sanders Show. Tying in with the recent release of Luc Besson's new film, The Family, we've decided to uh, discuss a different Robert De Niro film, uh, Sergio Leone's final picture, Once Upon a Time in America. Tying in with the gangster theme and the uh, Prohibition-era setting, we are also discussing The Roaring Twenties from director Raoul Walsh from 1939. Uh, we'll also be discussing the career of uh, Robert De Niro, and picking our Cinema Essential film set in the 20s that actually was not made in the 20s. With me, as always, is the Sergio to my Enio, Sean Gilman. How's it going, Sean? It's going all right. All right. <laughs> Let's start talking about Once Upon a Time in America. His eyes are as the eyes of doves. His body is as bright ivory. His legs are as pillars of marble. In pants so dirty they stand by themselves. He is altogether lovable. But he'll always be a two-bit punk. So he'll never be my beloved. What a shame. calling you. a clip from Sergio Leone's epic Once Upon a Time in America. It was his final film, and I, it was the first time I had seen it. I've seen, you know, the spaghetti westerns and, and what have you, but I've, I've never seen this one. It's it's kind of a daunting challenge in a way, because the film is uh, almost four hours long. Um, it's set, actually, in three different time periods. Uh, it stars Robert De Niro as a guy named Noodles, um, and it... it Shows him as a kid going up on the streets of New York, and then it, there's you know a long period showing him, uh, you know, in his 30s or so when he's running this racket, um, and then it it's kind of bookended with him um, as an older man, uh, kind of reflecting on this time period. 
Uh, Sean, you've seen this film a number of times. This was, what, your third viewing of the film? Yes. I'd be interested to see how does this film hold up for you over over time. Because it's it's an interesting picture. It's hard to say. I, I don't know that it's gotten it's gotten better or worse with time. Okay. It's uh, it's not one of those films like what we talked about last week where we said you get a different experience each time you see it. it not really. Okay. Uh, it's it's kind of the same experience every time. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> That's, That's fair. <laughs> I haven't really thought about that. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a difficult for me film for me to talk about because I I kind of like it. Uh-huh. I kind of think it's great. And also, I kind of really don't like it. <laughs> so, I guess we should uh, we should kind of get into the aspects of it that make it good and bad. And sure. That's so, what what, what, what did you think of it as this was your first time watching it? Uh, I actually, I agree with you. I don't know what you didn't like and what you did like. Um, I was, I was, for about two hours and change, I was pretty riveted to this thing. The, of those three time periods that that I mentioned, uh, the stuff when they are kids is is just wonderful. I, I love every minute of that stuff. I think it's just great. On the flip side, the stuff when De Niro is an older man and he's got this you know makeup on to make him look older and he's kind of reflecting on his life and stuff. Uh, it was okay earlier in the picture when it happens, and it's kind of fleeting early in the picture. But then it comes to this; it culminates in this ending where he he teams up, he re uh, teams, or you know, he meets up with uh, James Woods' character who plays his best friend over the years. And that that final hour after the intermission, which it mostly takes place during the later time period, I don't really care for it so much. What do you, what do you think the movie is about? What do you think what do you think it's saying? How do you think it works as I, a, a gangster film? Well, what I think this movie actually is ultimately about is it's a it, the theme of the film is people being in places where they don't belong, and that's going you know something as small scale as noodles as a kid spying on uh, Deborah when she's dancing, looking through the hole in the bathroom. He's not supposed to be there, but he's there, and um, and and shortly after that. Uh, when he meets up with Max and they kind of start doing their two-bit cons and stuff to, you know, create their own little racket. Um, the kingpin of their neighborhood, uh, what's his name, Bugsy, yeah. comes in and he beats them up and tells them to stay out of his turf or whatever. And he pointedly says to Max, after he's bloodied him and thrown him in a gutter, he says, you should have stayed in the Bronx, you know, as of saying, you know, you don't belong here. Um and it ties into the larger story of the picture between Noodles and Max, where um, they're both from the streets, and it's kind of like a you know in the wire um, with Avon Barksdale and Stringer Bell, where they they grew up together, but and they kind of run sure. game, the game together, but then it comes a point where Stringer Bell kind of wants to go legit and you know work within the system, whereas Avon Barksdale, or in this case Noodles you know, advises Max not to get involved with politicians because even though he's a gangster and he's killed people, he still doesn't trust politicians. Politicians are worse than gangsters sure. in, in his world. Um, so he thinks that the, the two of them don't belong in that world. Um, and then I think if you wanted to extrapolate that even further, the film could, you know, be about this culture maybe not fitting in somewhere. You know, I mean, it, pointedly, it's about, you know, Jewish kids. Yeah, children of immigrants. Yeah, um, you know, growing up on the streets of New York and, you know, time and again, you know, Jews have been 
Well, I, I think that's really important because I think, you know, the film was Once Upon a Time in America, and I think it's it's very much about this idea of the American dream and not just, you know, the American dream in particular, like politically as, you know, the children of immigrants, but the American dream as reflected in gangster movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, gangster stories are, are typical kind of, uh, are typically kind of parodies of the American ideal of capitalism, where these underground people will do whatever it takes in order to succeed, and then they come to some horrible end. And it's like the it's the flip side of the American dream. So in like the the Warner Brothers gangster cycle of the 30s, we're going to talk about Roaring Twenties later. Um, you see that a lot, and also in the uh, in the Godfather movies, there's this this dark side of capitalism that's shown in the American dream. And, and Once Upon a Time in America connects it specifically with the immigrant experience, like the Godfather Part Two did. Yes, I, I, yeah, definitely. Those early scenes are very evocative of the of the um, De Niro parts in Godfather Part Two. Yeah, and those those are actually my favorite scenes in in the film as well. Um, the movie is just so it's it's such a a vivid and 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 uh, complex world that it creates. Just the, the the couple of streets of of turn of the century New York, the that Looney builds that are just peopled with with you know, hundreds of extras and he has these great Sergio Leone crane shots with the Ennio Morricone score. And you see like this entire, you know, community. Well, and what he's really good. And what's really good. I made a note about this is he really waits to unveil that street scene. Yeah. You know, you see a lot of interior stuff in those, in those early scenes. And then, you know, I don't know how long it is into the movie, but then he comes out and he does this 20 minutes. Yeah. He does this crane shot and you're like, Okay, you know now, whew, you know he was, you know, wisely holding that. Close. Yeah, well, it's like it's like twenty minutes into like the the period scenes, right? Like, because the first fifteen minutes of the movie are like set in different times before we ever get back to the past and start to proceed more more chronologically. We'll get to the the weird structure of the movie later, but so this is this is what I think the the film has in common with with other gangster movies. But what differentiates it, I think, is that. None of the characters are are heroic. They're none of them are good guys caught up in bad situations. They're all terrible human beings. Yeah, they really are. And even you know Michael Corleone in The Godfather, he starts as a good guy. Like you think he's a good guy, and he has good intentions. Nobody in Once Upon a Time in America has good intentions. Yeah, they're all pretty much just horrible people. And, you know, that, and that makes the film really difficult to watch because it's really difficult to watch Noodles and root for him because he's not... When he's raping yeah. <laughs> women. Not once, but twice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Uh, it, it is very difficult. I mean, I think, I think part of the reason those early scenes, or, you know, when I say early scenes, the, the ones that, when they're kids, is that Noodles, that's kind of... When he's deciding which path he wants to go down, yeah, they're a little more innocent as kids. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. But they're still, you know, he's he's definitely set on this path of, of crime and and you know violence and, and what have you. Um, but that's why I think those scenes with him and the young Deborah, played by Jennifer Connelly, um, I think those are the best parts in the movie. Um, I think I, my biggest problem with this movie actually is. Uh, Jennifer Connelly turning into Elizabeth McGovern, it doesn't work because Jennifer Connelly, Jennifer Connelly, when you're watching it, and and maybe this this is a little personal <laughs> bias being brought towards it, but Jennifer Connelly 
is so great at being this dream girl. Um, and Elizabeth McGovern is really not. And, and there's that first scene when he meets her in the speakeasy uh, when they're older. And he comes up to her and she's speaking with a very husky voice and stuff. And it doesn't work at all. No, she's not... She doesn't give. I don't know if it's, if it's casting or it's just her as an actor, but her her performance is just not nearly as good as as Jennifer Connelly's yeah. is. But my my question is like, do you do you think we're how do you think we're supposed to view Noodles? Are we supposed to sympathize with him? Are we supposed to view him as the hero, or do we are we supposed to feel sorry for him? Because I think the the rape scene in particular and Noodles' actions in general are can be you know a major turnoff in the film. Like, but. I, I hate to dismiss a film by saying that the characters are unlikable because right. it's like the laziest kind of film criticism for me. Right. And I, I don't think that, that Leone necessarily wants us to to view Noodles as a hero, but I don't know that he's necessarily like critiquing him, like setting him up as, as an object of our scorn. Like he wants us to recognize him as a bad guy and yet still feel some sympathy for him. Yeah, I think, I think so. I, I mean... It... Because I kind of follow Noodles, I, I, I had sympathy for Noodles um, for a good chunk of this thing, you know, and, and a lot of that is that goodwill I was talking about from when he's a kid. Like, I, you know, he's, he's an interesting character, um, even though he's never, he never does anything out of the kindness of his heart, or he, he never does anything altruistic in this movie. It's always for his own gain. Um, but that goodwill of him being a kid... And I think the performance, I don't know who the kid is, but I really like the performance of the kid um, as him in this. Goes a long way, but then, yeah, once... I, you know, I don't want to keep harping on these rape scenes, but, like, they're really brutal, and, and they really... Yeah, the major one, it goes on for a long time. Yeah. Like, he... Leone does not let us off the hook at all. Yeah. And I think, I think what he's doing is, is if the gangster genre is the, the dark side of the American dream, the, the typical gangster movie will still present a kind of romantic hero. Right. You know, a, a Robin Hood type figure or a, a James Cagney who's like, so he's a bad guy, but he's James Cagney. So you just, you right. like him and you right. root for him anyway. Right. So with Once Upon a Time in America, not only is he using the gangster film to reflect the dark side of the American dream, he's reflecting the dark side of the gangster genre of the the romantic ideal the the gangsters in once upon a time in america are not are not uh charming right. they're not you know charismatic figures right they're despicable human beings right you wouldn't read about them like if you were living in that time you wouldn't read about their exploits in the newspaper and kind of make them out to this like outlaw ideal they're they're just bad people right yeah. and it's it's kind of like a, it's like the the revisionist westerns in the 1960s the spaghetti westerns instead of like presenting heroic you know cowboy figures they you know they're they're dirty and grungy and violent and mean and mm-hmm. crude and stupid and it's the same kind of thing with with this movie but the production values and the score conflict with that to make it seem like this this grand romantic epic vision of American history and gangsters. So there's this this real tension in the center of the film between the the anti heroic anti romantic nature of the characters and the way that Leone films it and presents the those characters. So so hmm, his. Uh... And I don't, I don't know how to resolve. I don't know if, if he wants that tension to be there. I don't know if he actually thinks that Noodles should be heroic. I don't know how to take the the film. I think, I think it's complicated. 
It is, it which, is, is which is really interesting to me, and it's 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 uh, it's why I'm very unsettled about the film. And and watching it, this is the third time I've watched it, doesn't help me resolve it any further. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, like I said, this is my first time viewing it, um, and I I think what like what you were just saying, the production values and and the Morricone score and those crane shots and all all the Leone stuff in here. Like the filmmaking will pull me through that that kind of thorny stuff. Um, I don't know. I I was repulsed by the character, but it didn't turn me off on the movie itself uh, yeah. because the movie is so. Does that make you feel bad about yourself? Yeah, <laughs> makes me I, kind I, of feel bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a sociopath, so you know, <laughs> let that be known. Um, no, it really doesn't. I I think the filmmaking here is, for the most part so strong you know i think i think the the story is so weighty and i don't think he sticks the landing you know um the the whole denouement the last hour of the picture doesn't really tie up any loose ends it doesn't make me feel any you know sense of uh closure see actually i think i think that's that might be the most fascinating thing about the film is is the modern day section well it's not modern day it's set in 1968 right. which was 15 years before the movie was actually released but uh it's 35 years after the events in the middle section of the film and it basically involves james woods's character bringing robert de niro back he's been in hiding for 35 years in order to like get him uh to kill him right he wants to hire Robert... James Woods wants to hire Robert De Niro to kill him. Uh, for complicated plot reasons that, <laughs> that aren't really necessary. And De Niro refuses to do it. And and he, he goes through this movie and so many gangster films, not just Hollywood ones, but also like Hong Kong films are about revenge and about like the enforcement of a code. Somebody violates a rule and so they must be, be punished. And that's kind of what James Woods wants to do. He's committed all of these crimes against Robert uh, against De Niro. He's violated the the brotherly code, and De Niro just like refuses to enforce that anymore. He just goes he 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 takes kind of a Zen approach to it, where it's just you know I don't I don't care. I'm just gonna gonna go on. He turns the other cheek and just walks away, which is really unusual. Yeah, it no, it is. It just. For me, it seemed. I, I think it's, it's. I think it's an interesting idea in the abstract that I just don't think was um, sold well. I, I, I don't. I, that final scene with the two of them is kind of tedious, and this movie's messy, and it's it's a messy end to a messy movie. So I can I can go with it with that. It's it's a very oblique ending. Yeah, like it's it doesn't really spell things out, and especially in the the final shot of the modern day sequence where. Uh, it's not really clear what De Niro is seeing or if he's hallucinating it uh, or, you know, if it's, like, actual. Woods just kind of disappears behind a garbage truck, which is, is very unnerving. Which then leads to this, this alternate theory about the film, which is that the whole modern-day sequence is a dream that De Niro's character has under the influence of opium back in 1933. What do you think of that? That's a, I, I like that theory. That's a that's a pretty cool theory. Um, because because at, at this point he is he has basically ratted out Woods in order, you know, he thinks to save his life, and his friends end up getting killed by the police. 
so, you know, he's very depressed about this, so he goes to an opium den, and... And the movie ends with him, you know, getting high and smiling into yeah, the camera. just a terrifying <laughs> smile. That's, <laughs> That's a freeze, freeze frame, frame for the entire end credits. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's really disturbing. It's pretty disturbing. So the theory is that as he's in 1933, high on opium, he dreams that 35 years in the future he will come back and he will see all of these people and he will turn out that Woods actually betrayed him and that Deborah, the, the uh, Elizabeth McGovern character that he raped, will actually have betrayed him as well in turn. I like that a lot. I mean, I hadn't... Post facto justify the horrible things that he's done. Right. I I think that's a really interesting interpretation, and I hadn't hadn't thought of that. And I actually, I like that more than, you know, the way I read it, which was a a more straight, you know, this is, you know, obviously chronologically what happened or whatever. But that, that you know, because there is a a dreamlike quality to those... um, you know, late period scenes, not just the one where he meets up with Woods and, and the end where there's the, um, the garbage truck that turns into the, uh, you know, car of you know, the 30s revelers. Yeah. The midnight in Paris thing right. <laughs> that happens there. Uh, but even earlier, you know, where he's the train station and he's looking in the, you know, frosted mirror at himself and the Coney Island thing. And, um, there's these transitions that happen that bleed from one era to another and it kind of makes it dreamlike or whatever. So I, I, I like that. I mean, I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know if that's really what happens, but uh, I like subscribing to, you know, weirdo ideas like that. Yeah, I, I like I like this theory a lot. I don't know how it, it kind of fits in with the uh, with the movie generically or, or, or politically as a critique of the American dream or anything like that. But... Uh, you know, I, I think I think it's a coherent explanation of the film. Sure. Uh, so you're you're the music guy. Tell me about Zamfir, Master of the Pan Flute. <laughs> I have nothing to say about Zamfir, Master of the Pan Flute, but I I, I will say that uh, you know my my pithy review on uh, Letterboxd, you know, basically just highlighted the Morricone score and. I mean, it's just so good. I mean, I, you know, what can you say? I mean, okay, let me ask you. So, Leone Morricone, that is the best director-composer relationship of all time. I mean, I know you've got your Bernard Herrmann, Alfred Hitchcocks, which which is great. Um, and you've got your Christopher Nolan, Hans Zimmer stuff, which I know you love a lot. <laughs> but there's never been a marriage of... Two like-minded individuals uh, creating something that uh, that compares to this. I'm sorry, it's just fantastic. Yeah, Her- Herman and Hitchcock would be the only the only competition. Well, there's you know me. I think John Williams, Steven Spielberg, when they're you know firing all cylinders, I think I I like me some John Williams. I know it can be bombastic and treacle. Just but... just as a composer, John Williams is not in the same league as as Herman. Or, yeah, but he, well, or Morricone. Nobody's in the same league as Morricone. I'm sorry. I mean, for this thing, I mean, and... and it, well, the, Miklos Rosa is a very great composer. Wolfgang Klongold. You know, there's a lot of great composers that have worked in film. I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying that there, you know, there's like a... He's in a league of his own. I, he's, I, he's great. He's, he's great, and he's great with the audience. He's great. And, you know... When uh, a little digression here, but you know he was so mad at Tarantino after Tarantino's use of his stuff in uh, Django. Yeah, like he's like I think he gave permission, but then when he saw the film, he thought that Tarantino completely 
you know, bungled the use of his music, and, and he refuses to work with Tarantino in the future. Um, and, you know, Tarantino uses it for different ends or whatever, but it, in this thing, I mean, just that, that theme melody that plays, you know, all often in this I'll, thing, I'll oh, it's just great. Did you appreciate the use of uh, Yesterday by the Beatles? I, you know, I did. I At first I was like, this is kind of weird, but I, I actually really like the version that's used here where they just use the first line of each, uh, or first word of each uh, line in the song. You know, yesterday, suddenly. Uh, that's really cool. I thought that was really awesome. Uh, yeah, the, the music's great. Uh, it, was a little, it was a little jarring, but it does set the, the time period because it's, it's taking place in 1968. So. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, it fits. Oh, well, it's, well, speaking of sound or whatever, the sound design in this movie and the use of, of like um, certain sounds are really heightened and it's, and it's really cool. There's the scene early in the film where there's the phone ringing. Yeah, the phone ringing scene is, is, is terrific because it just goes on oh, it and goes on. on. And it, it goes, it travels from like one location to another and from one time to another and it, at one point it, it goes to a phone and somebody picks it up so you think finally they picked it up and but it's the a phone's different still phone. ringing it's the wrong phone. Yeah, it's a great, <laughs> it's such a great section. And then later in the film when uh, Noodles comes back from his I think it's from his bender, you know, after he rapes uh, McGovern. Yeah, he's been in a op- in the opium. He's den. been in the opium den, and he comes back to their, you know, uh, hideout or their, you know, uh, headquarters. Headquarters, and it's very tense, and everybody's kind of angry with each other. And he's sitting there, and he's stirring uh, sugar into his coffee or whatever he's doing. Yeah. And the sound of the spoon in the in the coffee cup is just deafening because there's nothing else going on there. I, I mean. That's some that's some heavy duty stuff right there. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Like all all of the like the the technical aspects of the production are just ridiculously sumptuous and and epic and and lovely, and the characters are not. <laughs> so I mean, where this is your first time seeing it, you've seen you know the other Leone Spaghetti westerns. Have you seen all of them? No, I haven't right. seen for a few dollars more. Okay, and I haven't seen uh, Ducky Sucker. Oh, Ducky Sucker's good. Yeah. Uh, so where would you, where would you place this on your Leone scale? Um, it's probably at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but that doesn't mean that it's bad. Like you know, I give it. A, it's a four star movie. I I feel I would like to see it again and maybe see it with your interpretation in mind and maybe see if I enjoy those later scenes uh, with thinking of it as it's all a dream. Um, by the way, have you watched Ferris Bueller? I mean, have you watched Fight Club? No. Have you watched Ferris Bueller? Do you know the theory about Ferris Bueller? Yeah, that he's a figment of Cameron's imagination. Yeah, he's like Tyler Durden. It yeah. works, man. I'm telling you, it works. Um, so, yeah, I would put it at the bottom, you know, Once Upon a Time in the West is is just a masterpiece, as, as are, you know, the, some of the others that he yeah. did. Once Upon a Time in the West and Good Men, the Ugly are my favorites. And and this one is kind of in there with, with Fistful of Dollars and few, for a few dollars more. It's 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 good. It's worth seeing if you have a high tolerance for uh, despicable people, despicable people, and and really graphic rape scenes. If that's a problem for you, I would not recommend watching <laughs> this movie. We're gonna put that on the box cover on the reissue. <laughs> if you have a problem with rape, don't watch this movie. Sean Gilman. <laughs> with that, we're gonna listen to a little bit of NWA. Here's Gangsta Gangsta. I'm the type of nigga that's built to last. If you fuck with me, I put my foot in your ass. I don't give a fuck cause I keep bellin', bellin'. Yo, what the fuck are they yelling? Wait a minute. 
wait a minute, cut this shit. Man, what you gonna do now? What we gonna do right here is go back. How far are you going back? Way back. <laughs> As we go a little something like this. Hit it! Here's a little gangster short in size. A t-shirt Levi's is his only disguise. Built like a tank, get hard to hit. I cube and easy E co-running shit. Well, I'm easy E, they want the talking about. Nigga tried to roll a dice and just crapped out. Police tried to roll, so it's time to go. I creeped away real slow and jumped in the six four with the diamond in the Motherfuckers like it ain't no thing And all you bitches, bitches You know I'm talking to you We wanna fuck you easy I wanna fuck you too Because you see I don't really take no shit So let me tell you motherfuckers Who you're fucking with Cause I'm the type of nigga That's built to last If you fuck with me I put a foot in your ass I don't give a fuck Cause I keep bailing Bailing Yo what the fuck are they yelling easy where you are back on the george sanders show and in the uh in the news this week there's not a whole lot like with pretty much every week there's <laughs> except for last a, week there's not a whole lot of news there was news last week uh this week uh the only real uh interesting thing we came across was this article in the seattle weekly about scarecrow video which is a fantastic video store in seattle and it's it's managed to to Survive so far, given the the collapse of the whole video rental industry, thanks to to Netflix and Red various Box. other absurdities. But it's it's still not doing great, which is kind of the the news story. Yeah, in, the, in the in the article is that while they're still around, they're not really thriving. They're really struggling. Yeah, um, the yeah the they're so a little background. Maybe we should say for people that don't live in Seattle. Sure. Scarecrow started uh, about twenty years ago. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, um, and it's it tries to have a copy of everything ever filmed. Basically, um, they have currently a hundred and twenty thousand titles or something like that. Yeah, and they've got you know if it's not on DVD, they've got it on VHS, or if it, or if it's only on Laserdisc, they've got the Laserdisc. They've got every format. Um, they've got everything and they've been owned by two Microsoft guys or uh, currently it's just one Microsoft guy, but yeah. two Microsoft guys bought it about 10 years ago and have kind of kept it afloat, um, because they have day jobs for Microsoft and they can afford to do that. But yeah, it's really, it, you know, they've, they've been reorganizing the space there over the last couple of years. They've created a screening room. They've added an espresso stand. They're trying to yeah, they're 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 trying all kinds of things in order to to drum up more business. I've I go there every week and rent movies on Wednesdays. Wednesdays two for one. Two for one. It's great. So yeah, it's just my my weekly outing with the kids. I I strap them into the car and, and drag them to the video store, and it's it's fantastic. I watched like ninety Hong Kong movies this summer, and and ninety percent of them are movies that you couldn't find on on Netflix or or streaming or anything. And, and Scarecrow had them all. Yep. Yeah, I go to Scarecrow. I don't go to Scarecrow as, as often as you do, but I, you know, especially for this show or something, if there's something that I can't get 
through the library where I work, um, you know, I don't have Netflix anymore. I haven't had it for several years. Um, Scarecrow's right across the street from me, and I just, you know, pop over there, and they they always have it, and it's great. Yeah, and like we mentioned on the, the Grandmaster show, you know, the the only version you can see in theaters and the only version you'll ever be able to get on Netflix will be the, the Harvey Weinstein cut of the movie, but you can go rent the, the real version, the, the Chinese version right now. Yeah. You could have done it before it even opened in theaters here. Um, yeah, Scarecrow is really wonderful. And I think the telling quote in that article was, um, the owner was talking about how he meets people from time to time and says he owns Scarecrow. And they say, oh, Scarecrow, I love Scarecrow. And he asks them, when was the last time you were in? And they're like, oh, when I was in college. <laughs> they haven't gone in 10, 15 years. Well, we heard the same thing. I, I was at the the Neptune when, when that got bought out and, and closed. And, and the Neptune was a movie theater that had been continuously operating and showing movies in Seattle since 1920. 1920. Yeah. And in, in 2010, it was... Uh, purchased kind of out from under us at, at Landmark and uh, converted into a music venue. And there was uh, there was kind of a muted outcry of the time of people like, oh, the Neptune's closing. That's too bad. I love the Neptune. And we'd ask people, well, yeah, when did when did you last go? Yeah, Ten years ago, yeah. five years ago. Yeah. And it's that's just sad. I mean, if you're if if you live in Seattle and you love movies and you rent movies from Redbox instead of Scarecrow, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I I don't know how Scarecrow's going to be able to survive. It would be great for them to become like a nonprofit organization like the library where it's supported by the people of Seattle because because there's I think it a not insignificant uh portion of people who thinks Scarecrow kind of, you know, represents what Seattle's about in a way. And, you know, there's... Which is part of the reason why it's lasted as long as it Absolutely. has. Because, because Seattle is such a, a pro-arts city. You know, you know, major video stores, you know, Scarecrow-like video stores have closed all over the country, in, in Los Angeles, Chicago, in Manhattan even. Uh, there was one in, in Manhattan that, like, some guy in Italy had to buy, like, the, the whole store, and they moved, like, the whole inventory oh, to, really? like, Milan or wherever. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the Scarecrow's managed to survive, and it's, it's because of people in Seattle. But, but yeah, they should, I, I, if there was some way for, like, there to be some sort of, like, uh, tax or something where every citizen within the city limits uh, kind of kept Scarecrow afloat. Uh, I, because it's got, it's got everything, and like you said, so much of it you cannot get anywhere else. You really yeah. cannot, uh, you know. Yeah, and I don't... I don't think it's it's really like Redbox that's putting Scarecrow out of business in the same way that like Blockbuster couldn't. It's, it's internet pornography. Well, it's internet pornography because people don't rent the porn movies there anymore. But what it is 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 people who like art movies and people who like foreign movies who will just download them on the internet, watch them on YouTube, or torrent them instead of going to the video store and renting them. Because like you could you can watch Grandmaster on the Blu-ray that you rent from Scarecrow and get the Chinese cut, or you can steal it from the internet and not pay anything. Right. And that's what's killing Scarecrow's business because that main audience, the the cinephile people, the people who want the, the weird, obscure foreign movie, those are the people that, that keep Scarecrow going, not the people who are looking to rent, you know, the latest Melissa McCarthy comedy. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, I think Scarecrow recognizes that and that's why they're trying to become this, kind of social hub for weirdos like us mm -hmm. by doing these screenings of obscure movies and 
Q and A's with directors and they, you know, they've been doing signings with people for years. I mean, I remember when, uh, David Lynch was there, you know, a while back and stuff. So, you know, hopefully that, you know, turns into something and that, that, that manages to keep them afloat, you know, um, you know, some of the other things they've done in the last couple of years, I, I don't think, you know, I remember when they started introducing video games there and I was like, I don't know if this is going to help, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, but, um. Yeah, anyway, Scarecrow's awesome. And, you know, the famous story about Scarecrow is, you know, 20 years ago, Tarantino was in town, and he was downtown. I think he might have been promoting Pulp Fiction or something, and he his goal when he came to Seattle was to visit Scarecrow Video, and he called them and asked them, you know, where they were located, and they said, oh, you know, and they, get, they told him whereabouts it was, and he said, okay, I'm going to walk over there, and they said, but you're downtown, that's going to take you several hours, and he's like, that's okay, and he walked... <laughs> <laughs> in in the blazing sun for like you know three hours to get to Scarecrow and you know it was the second thing I did when I moved to Seattle um, moved into my apartment got my my minivan unloaded and then I went uh, on the way to Scarecrow I stopped at Cinema Books which is a great bookstore uh, just a block away and then I went into Scarecrow Video and the first time I was there I uh, I didn't rent anything. I was too intimidated. I just walked around staring at the shelves with my mouth agape. All of these movies that I'd heard about and been totally unable to see growing up in Spokane. And they were suddenly all available to me. And I, I couldn't rent anything the first day I went, I went home. And first thing the next morning, I went back and I rented. I had this huge stack of videotapes. I had like, you know, like 16 videotapes. And the guy said, uh, you can only rent eight at a time. <laughs> So I had to put a bunch back. But then that was all I did for like the first six weeks I lived in Seattle before I got a job. I just went to Scarecrow and watched movies all the time. Yeah, it's great. It's and it, I don't know what else I'm going to say. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. So go rent a movie at Scarecrow. Uh, let's talk about our, our essential for this week. Yes, let's. So we're picking, obviously, tying in with the Roaring Twenties and um, Once Upon a Time in America. Uh Films set in the 20s that weren't actually filmed in the 20s. So they're kind of reflecting on that age. Because it's a very right. fascinating and, time. And both of the films we picked this week are, are memory films. Sure. They're, they're documents of an earlier period. They're looking back on the Prohibition era. Exactly. Yeah, because it, it, it's, you know, it's ripe. You know, there's, there's plenty you can, you can do in this time period. Yeah. Um, so what did you pick? Well, you know, I, I looked at a lot of things, you know, there are a lot of movies that have, you know, periods set in the 20s, but I wanted to do something that was, you know, obviously the whole time, the whole movie's set in the 20s, uh, and I wanted to do something that I don't normally do, but fuck it. <laughs> I think I've talked about them every week on the show, and it's, it's going to keep happening. Um, I picked Porco Rosso, the uh, Miyazaki film, about a, uh, you know... Uh, World War One veteran uh, fighter pilot uh, who happens to have the face of a pig, uh, who kind of battles these air pirates, and it has this kind of you know romantic noirish kind of feel to it, and it's a very lush film that that is very evocative of that time period, and it, it takes place in Italy, so it's not uh, it's not the America of the twenties, and prohibition doesn't come up, you know, there's none of that stuff obviously, um, but it has this post war kind of funereal kind of vibe to it. And there's this, there's one great moment in that movie where, um, 
he's having a dream or he's remembering there's where all these planes are just sitting on the clouds when he was in the war and they're just like floating there. And, and that to me is the image I get when I think of Porco Rosso. It's just this, you know, these gorgeous looking, you know, World War One planes, uh, you know, single flyer planes, just, you know, nestled on these clouds. And I, and my love of Porco Rosso gets me really excited about uh, Miyazaki's new film, The Wind Rises, because it's, it's all. It's about planes, and it's it's about the guy who designed the planes for World War Two, but uh, but is evidenced by this, you know, by Porco Rosso is Miyazaki knows how to film flying <laughs> or, or draw flying, should I say? Uh, my pick is uh, is Bob Fosse's 1972 film Cabaret, which is uh, also doesn't have anything to do with prohibition. No, it it's doesn't. In uh, in Weimar Germany in the uh, in the 1920s, leading up to uh, uh, it actually kind of covers the same the same time period as like the roaring twenties. It kind of goes from post-war from right. Like the immediate, the, from the post-war era right onto like the eve of uh, Nazism in, in 1933. And, and for me, you know, when I, when I think of the 1920s, I think the, the popular conception of the 1920s is that this big, long, crazy drunken binge where after world war one, everyone was just so depressed and so, you know, happy that the war was over uh, and so driven crazy by the fact that like millions of people died in this totally pointless war that everyone just went crazy <laughs> for 10 years. And then there's a, and then there's a, a kind of a, a moralist uh, twist at the end of the story, which is that it all crashed with the stock market crash and then the great depression where we, we, you know, as a, as a culture, we went through this horrible trauma, and then we celebrated getting free of it, but we celebrated too much, right. and then we had to pay for it with, right. you know, an even worse... Well, the pendulum swung back in the other kind of trauma. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what Cabaret captures is just the kind of the crazy decadence of the 1920s, the, uh, the, the drinking and the doing drugs and the, the crazy sex and the weird musical clubs, and then... It, it and then it it kind of uh, uh, collapses into into fascism as the Nazis kind of take over and the party ends and there's and there's a kind of portents of the punishment to come with the depression and the uh, and World War Two. Yeah, it's a great pick. Uh, do you which do you prefer of Fosse's, uh films? Do you prefer this or all that jazz? I prefer all all that jazz, but I prefer Cabaret to The Godfather. Which in in the Oscars in 1972, those were the the two main big nominees. Sure, uh, The Godfather won won Best Picture and like two other awards, and Cabaret won like everything else. Yeah, which was uh, was kind of odd. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Godfather won like Picture and Director, and and Cabaret won like eight other Oscars. I get. I can see that argument. Um, I, they're both great movies. Uh, I think The Godfather Two is better than neither of them. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think I could I could say Cabaret is better than The Godfather. Yeah, sure, good. What the hell? <laughs> uh, well, speaking of The Godfather Part Two, yes, speaking of uh, Robert De Niro is the star of our Person of the Week segment here uh, this week. Obviously, he was in Once Upon a Time in America, and the tie-in for this show, he's in uh, The Family, and. Which I don't know anything about. I don't know anything. I think it's kind of a comedy, maybe. Like uh, it's a mobster comedy, yeah. maybe. I directed by Luke Besson. We 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 looked this up before the show. <laughs> we we're looking for like the last good Robert De Niro movie. Stardust is a good movie. 
is kind of a fun, you know, fantasy comedy kind of thing. But it's not really a Robert De Niro movie. The the last time we could find like a really good movie with Robert De Niro being the Robert De Niro that we know and love, it was nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, with, with Ronan, and then the year before with Jackie Brown. Uh, and that's a long time to go for a great actor. That's fifteen years since he's done anything. Well, you know, to be fair, I mean. I mean, we haven't seen all exactly. of the Robert De Niro movies. <laughs> I, I haven't. I don't think I've seen any of the Robert De Niro movies in the last fifteen years. Um, and and you know, he did get you know nominated for uh, Silver Linings Playbook last year, yeah. uh, which I'm not saying you know one way or the other. But it was a performance that was recognized in a movie that was generally you know liked. I didn't see it. Yeah, I, I think it looked it terrible, and I hadn't, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's really you know, I mean, that's kind of the the narrative people hinge on now with De Niro is, uh, you know, he's kind of squandered all of the goodwill he made, you know, from the seventies and eighties and what have you. Which I, which I think is kind of ridiculous. Like, uh, Robert De Niro from, from like his, his first appearance on screens in the, in the early seventies until the late nineties is, is one of the greatest actors in film history and what what distinguished him so much is the amount of effort and work that he would go to in preparing for his roles. And he's like the ultimate method actor. Like, he would really get inside these characters and really bring them to life. And if he wants to spend, like, 15 years goofing off, <laughs> so he's, be he's it. earned that right with, sure. you know, 30 years of brilliant work, you know. And, and, you know, if he wants to make money goofing around with Ben Stiller and Billy Crystal... I say more power to him. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where, you know, hopefully De Niro has a long life ahead of him, you know, but when the day comes that he does die. He's not going to be remembered for analyze that. Exactly. Like, all the other, all the other junk is just going to be washed away. No one's going to care about yeah. it. And, and, and you're going to have way, the, You know, the, we look back on Jimmy Stewart's career and remember Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or Vertigo. Right. Nobody talks about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Right. Was he in that one? I don't know. the Gnome Mobile? <laughs> he was in one of those Disney movies. <laughs> he wasn't in The Incredible Mr. Limpet. No. That was Don Knotts. But, uh, but you see my point. No, no, absolutely. I, it was my point initially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really? Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, you know, all the, all, the, all the junk, you know, and look at John Wayne. I mean, John Wayne did so many B-Westerns yeah. that are just terrible. I mean, but those were, you know, more early in this career. Well, but still, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's yeah. their... No one cares, right. <laughs> you know. If you were, in, you know, you could be in one great movie or, or have a great turn in a great movie, and that's what people are going to remember. So who gives a damn? Yeah, uh, Robert De Niro is probably the the first actor I remember thinking was a great actor. Mm. Like I, I grew up in like the the late eighties and early nineties, where where he was like in on the, the streets of New York, on the streets of New York, <laughs> where he was uh, just trying to get a hustle, <laughs> where he was. Uh, uh, kind of the most famous actor's actor right at the time like he wasn't doing his best work then that was probably in like the in the 70s and, and the early 80s but he was like the the biggest star actor of the time and uh i remember you know i would watch movies just for robert de niro in them you know taxi driver raging bull uh king of comedy cape fear yeah uh, and then I, I, I saw him once. He, he didn't do a lot of interviews. He didn't do a lot of, a lot of press at the time. And then uh, I remember he was uh, uh, going to appear on Late Night with David Letterman. So I made a point of watching it because I'd never seen a, a Robert De Niro interview before. 
and I was so disappointed. Mm. He was he was stiff, and he was like telling, trying to tell jokes, and he was really bad. Mm. And and I was I was so, you know, kind of disturbed by the the difference in this guy who was so smooth and confident and competent on screen when he's like playing these these gangster roles, and then was like such a, a, a schmuck on Letterman. It's funny because it's funny that you say that because I was just before you know we started recording for the show, I was flipping through some pictures of him on IMDb, um, red carpet photos and stuff like that, or, you know, stuff that's not in the films. And he looks awkward, yeah. like, all the time. It's yeah. kind of weird. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, if that's just him acting awkward, kind of doing, like, a Rupert Pupkin thing <laughs> as, like, some kind of, like, subtle parody of a talk show, or if in real life he's just kind of an awkward guy. I think he might and be that's why it, it took him so long and takes him so much work to prepare for these roles is because they're really not like him at all. <laughs> I think you might be honest. I mean, you know, it's a fool's game to guess, but uh, it, that's kind of what I'm reading here. I mean, he does seem kind of, uh, kind of like a putz. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You heard it here first, people. De Niro is a putz. Um, well, let me ask you this. It'll be this, Batman. Uh, what's your favorite De Niro role? Uh, Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle? <laughs> Probably. Um, I mean, he's he's great in so many roles. It's, it's it's really hard to pick one. Like his his best performance is probably Raging Bull or or King of Comedy. Uh, but the, neither of those are are particular favorites of mine. Uh, I really love him in in Goodfellas. There's a scene in Goodfellas. Uh, kind of in the middle of the movie where De Niro is uh, sitting at a bar and, and the camera kind of tracks forward and it's one of those Scorsese shots where there's like a, a slow motion track and Sunshine of Your Love is playing the, the cream song and De Niro just like takes a drag from his cigarette and puts, his at, uh, and puts it down and looks at the camera and uh, my friends and I in college just rewound and watched that, <laughs> that one shot over and over again just because he was just so cool in that one in that one sequence. So, you know, I, I, I would, I'm going to pick Goodfellas. Sure. Although, uh, uh, Taxi Driver is probably my favorite of his movies. I, th- I, I'd like to revisit those because like probably a lot of people, when you start really getting into movies, you kind of go through your Scorsese. I don't want to say it's a phase because I still love Scorsese and I go see his new films and stuff, but I haven't really revisited a lot of those in a while. Um, but I, you know, I think I gotta go with Raging Bull. I think I don't know. That's that's some monumental stuff going on right there. I mean, it's pretty impressive. T- talk about a, an unlikable yeah, lead character, exactly. And and that's a, the fascinating thing about De Niro is that he's he's kind of drawn to these guys who are just really repulsive. Mm-hmm. There, there's Jake LaMotta. There's Noodles. There's Rupert Pupkin. There's uh, what's uh, his name Travis in Mean Stickle, Streets? Uh, Johnny Boy. Johnny Boy in Mean Streets. Although you know. A little slight pause for the dog. <laughs> uh, Johnny Boy has that kind of charm and, and kind of anarchic punk attitude that uh, that Noodles doesn't have. Right. Uh, but yeah, there, there, there's something in, in De Niro as an actor that's drawn to these non-heroic people. He's not like the all-American actor. He's not somebody that you aspire to be like, like, no. a, like a like a Grant or a Stewart or or even a Cagney. Yeah, I can't think of any role 
that he's done that would even come close, you know, that would fall into that kind of category. De Niro's great. Don't 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 sweat the new stuff. Let the guy make some money, have some <laughs> fun. He's he's earned a chance to relax. So basically, what I'm saying is, leave De Niro alone. I will. And with that, we're going to go ahead and listen to a clip from the Roaring Twenties. Don't sit and pine. Tell me of the cares that make you feel so. Here he comes. What have I done? Answer me, hon. Have I ever said an unkind... You two guys think you're pretty cute. Shut up, the girl is sick. Now you listen to me. You tipped out the feds. I was running in a load last night, and they took it away from me. Makes a lot of noise when you eat spaghetti, too. And you lifted it from them. You're talking through your hat. The watchman you knocked off didn't die right away. He talked. He was off his nut. You're cute. Not cute enough. Hey, wait a minute, folks. What's your hurry? You're not going to go home just because a couple of the boys have a friendly little argument? Come on, stick around. We're going to give away the balloon. What's your hurry? Come on, get your force. Come on, get this guy out of here. Put your hat on, you'll catch cold. I hope. Wait a minute. Put these in water for me. Tramp. All right, so our our second movie this week is Raoul Walsh's 1939 gangster epic, The Roaring Twenties, which... It comes kind of at the end of the cycle of gangster movies in the 1930s, and it takes a, a very much a nostalgic look back at the Prohibition era, and it tries to cover the whole the whole sweep of time from uh, World War One through the the end of Prohibition and into into the Great Depression. Uh, it follows uh, three guys who meet in the war. There's there's James Cagney, who's uh, kind of a, an everyman who wants to be like a car mechanic when he gets home from the war. There's Humphrey Bogart, who was pretty clearly right from the beginning, totally psychotic. <laughs> and there's uh, Jeffrey Lynn playing just an utterly bland, milquetoast, wannabe lawyer guy. And the film the film follows them throughout the 15 years or so of its time as, as Cagney kind of vacillates between uh, the good of the Jeffrey Lynn character and the evil of the Humphrey Bogart character. All the while getting caught up in, in bootlegging and having a... Uh, pursuing his romantic ideal, who is this uh, uh, showgirl played by Priscilla Lane. What, as I said, it comes about as the the kind of end of the cycle of gangster movies that were made at Warner Brothers throughout the 1930s, and which made, which uh, Cagney was most famous for playing. And coming in 1939, it's right on the cusp of the the appearance of film noir. It's when the crime movie kind of transitions from a gangster movie to a kind of more darker, more melodramatic, more, you know, uh, singularly focused kind of, of crime film. Instead of, of bootlegging that being the crime, it's like murder, like a woman conspiring to kill her husband, something like that. Uh, so it, it occupies like a, an interesting transitional point in the, in the crime genre, I think. Are, are you a fan of these 1930s gangster movies, are you are you familiar with them? Do you know early Cagney at all? Uh, I, I don't really. I mean, I, I've only seen a handful of Cagney. I, um, 
last year, I think I said to myself, I've never seen a Jimmy Cagney movie, so I need to start watching, you know, some. And I watched, you know, um, Yankee Doodle Dandy, not fitting in with the genre here. And then uh, speaking of Walsh, uh, White Heat, which came ten years after after this, and yeah, that's Cagney, an even more nostalgic look at the gangster genre, right? And I think if I was reading correctly before the show, uh, I think Cagney didn't do. He didn't play a tough guy gangster role between these two, which was ten years. He didn't. He didn't. He really didn't like these roles. He yeah. wasn't really. That wasn't the kind of of guy he was. He kind of got typecast. Yeah. As that, he was more. You know, he always saw himself as like a, a song and dance man. You know, like in Yankee Doodle Dandy, right. where he plays uh, George M. Cohen. Uh, he's also great in Busby Berkeley's uh, Footlight Parade. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he became a star with The Public Enemy in. It was 1931, where he was originally play, uh, supposed to play like a supporting role, and the director William Wellman uh, switched the two actors on on the set when he you know just saw what a dynamic presence Cagney was, and that made him a huge star. And so he kept getting put in these in these t- tough guy gangster roles, and he really didn't care for it. Well, he's really good at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like I like Cagney a lot, um, and, and and he does a great job with. Uh, with showing the you know the way this character kind of straddles those two worlds, you know he you you do believe him as a, as a fairly decent chap, you know in the beginning of the movie, you know coming out of the war and stuff. He he seems like he's really on the up and up and stuff. Um, but then you also when he's you know at his lowest point and stuff, you also totally buy that too. So he really you know he's got so his work cut out for him in this. I, I while I love his performance, there are two performances in this movie that I think are. So so good that I just really want to talk about them. So I'm just going to talk about them. Okay. Uh, one is um, Humphrey Bogart uh, as George, the as you said, psychotic in this. Um, I have a very interesting relationship with Humphrey Bogart because uh, my stepfather Robert, um, he, I, you know, I, you don't want to you don't want to say someone is the biggest fan of somebody, but. He's a little psychotic, if we're going to use the word. He There's married, some pretty big Bogart fans out there. My uncle, I mean, my, my uncle, my my stepdad, Robert, married my mother on the 50th anniversary of Bacall and Bogart in the same location. They drove across the country to go there and have the 50th anniversary. It's kind of nuts. You make a compelling point. The guy's kind of nuts. Anyway, so so I grew up with him really loving Bogart. Um, and I, you know, I, I enjoyed Bogart, but always from a distance, I never really embraced him like I did some other actors from the, from the same era. Um, and you know, he's great in his big roles, you know, the Casablanca and, um, you know, Maltese Falcon and Big Sleep. He's great in that too. But here to me, I think, I think he's just as good in the Roaring Twenties as he is in anything else I've ever seen him in because he gets to play, this is early, you know, this is before he was like a big, big star he gets to play, usually the characters that he plays, like you were, we were talking about De Niro, where he's, De Niro, um, even when he's playing a good guy, you know, he's still got this, you know, bitterness, or he's got this, you know, he's never perfectly, you know, altruistic or whatever. Right. And and Bogart's characters were always, you know, world-weary and kind of, you know... Cynical. Cynical, exactly. But here he gets to play the villain, yeah. and he... I mean, he kicks ass in this thing. Yeah, and and Bogart at the time is kind of typecast uh, as well as Cagney as the villain in in these gangster movies. It's also in uh, Dead End and Angels with Dirty Faces 
and and the Roaring Twenties is probably like the most the most villainous villain that he's playing at the time. And he he it it fits so well with him. It's it's the next year in Raoul Walsh's uh, High Sierra where he plays uh, uh, a kind of a sympathetic villain as as the main character. That's the role that kind of catapults him to stardom. That and then uh, in 1941, The Maltese Falcon. Um, so uh, with the Roaring Twenties, Bogart is just like on the cusp of, of breaking through to be like a superstar. Well, he's absolutely riveting here and you totally can see that he was going to go somewhere. And this movie actually really, uh, changed, not changed my opinion, but really, uh, made me appreciate Bogart more than I have. Well, this is the thing about Bogart is, is he, like, like Hagney, he's nothing like these characters. Like Bogart was, was a rich kid from Manhattan. You know, he's the upper class dude. He's not guy from the streets right. or at all. Right. So I mean, that's acting. Yeah, acting, acting. acting. I'm what, an actor. What is the other performance you like? Um, can you guess? Uh, I'm gonna say not Priscilla Lane. It's not Priscilla Lane. Priscilla Lane is the <laughs> is the weak link here, uh, and we can get to that in a second. No, it's actually the flip side of her. Um, Gladys, yeah, Gladys George is Panama is so wonderful in this movie. There's, there are a couple of scenes, but the one in particular, um, you know, because, so Panama, her character, she's always been a floozy. She's always kind of been in this seedy underworld, and she kind of ushers in Cagney's character into this world. Right, she like runs a, a speakeasy, which is how Cagney gets gets involved in bootlegging, in, and in bootlegging is, is through her. And, and she's with him every step of the way. She's there, you know, at the beginning of, ushering him into this world, but she also sticks by him, uh, when, you know, after he's kind of, you know, made his money and lost it and he's, you know, she's got like the, the great romantic tension where she loves him, but she knows that he is in love with this ideal woman who doesn't like him at all. And there is such hurt in her eyes and, and just, but like resignation too, where there's that scene where Cagney is watching, uh, Priscilla Lane singing and he's totally riveted by her. And uh, Walsh cuts to uh, Panama, and and you just see it in her eyes, and it's devastating. And yeah. and she does it throughout the film. She, I mean, she runs circles around Priscilla Lane here. I'm sorry. I mean, she. You, when I'm watching the movie, I'm like, Cagney, you should just hang out with this woman. She's awesome. You know, she's great. Yeah, and, and that's a there's an interesting um, correlation here with Once Upon a Time in America, where where the Cagney character has idealized Lane all out of proportion in, and, and Noodles has idealized Jennifer Connelly all out of proportion. Well, you and can't the, idealize Jennifer Connelly out of proportion. <laughs> the, the way the two characters react to those dream women yeah. uh, is wildly different. Yeah. Like, like uh, Noodles, you know, as, as we said, ends up raping her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know, trying to justify his actions as through his own, you know, hurt. Mm-hmm. Whereas Cagney just feels bad and he gets betrayed by his best friend. Right. Well, and I think that goes to, you know, what we were saying or what you were saying mostly, um, uh, in the once upon a time discussion, um, Cagney here is, he starts out as a decent person. Yeah. He's a good guy yeah. who makes bad choices, many, many bad decisions and he pays for it. Right. Yeah. He, he, you know, he, yeah, he atones for his sins, you know, here. And, um, yeah, so the, those three, Bogart, um, George, and Cagney are just 
stupendous. Um, I think uh, I think a major weakness of the film is, is Jeffrey Lynn, who's playing a very bland character, but he plays him very blandly, which just makes everything about him just seem boring. And even though Priscilla Lane is kind of lame, you still don't really know why she likes him. Over oh, I, no, 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 no. I totally see it. Uh, no. Because they're both so bland. Yeah. They're, they're, bland likes bland. Yeah, bland likes bland. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's a white bread sandwich here. I mean, it's, you know, maybe there's a little mayo in between, but there's like, the, this is, it's bland on bland. And um, I, I totally, I totally bought it. Yeah. What about the, uh, there's like a, a major violation of, of the code here, which is that, is that Cagney and, and, and Lynn are our best friends, yet Lynn steals the girl behind his buddy's back that he knows that his buddy is in love with. Yeah, but, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say all is fair in love and war, but, um, it's clear, I mean, Lane, uh, Lane was never, and would never have been in love with Cagney. Yeah, and, but that's never made clear to Cagney. Like, but she, that's not, she just kind of leads him along and hooks up with his best friend behind his back. So, who, so does the fault lie with her, or does it lie with Lynn? With, with both of them, and I think it, it kind of presents these 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 two paragons of, of middle class American virtue as you know being at least Bogart is open about his evil. Oh yeah. But these these two you know these two ideal figures are much worse in my in my <laughs> opinion. They're like the real villains of the film. They're terrible human beings. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I think I think if uh, if Cagney ever came to like settle down with Priscilla Lane. The you know the pedestal that he had put her on would slowly you know crumble and he would be like oh wait I made a mistake and you're kind of boring you're kind of boring this yeah. is kind of stupid you know what I mean like um, sure so you know I think they they found each other and you know what are you gonna you know affairs of the heart what are you gonna do um, I don't think I you know they're 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 less entertaining villains than Humphrey Bogart. I'll tell you that much. Um, uh, this film has an interesting framing device where there's like a, it's it starts with like a a little note from the the writer Mark Hellinger who was a a newspaper columnist throughout the 1920s and this is kind of based on on his stories supposedly of people that he actually knew and he gives like a little uh, the yeah he he gives a little declaration at the beginning yeah, that, that says that, you know this this film is a memory right. Uh, which is which is a neat idea, and then throughout the film, there's this narrator with these kind of newsreel uh, segments that that position the plot in terms of what's going on in world events, like the rise of fascism or you know the election of FDR and stuff like that. And it's very much kind of like a march of time kind of technique. Yeah, it, but but and you know this, uh, I, I really wanted to talk about these montages here because they're to me they're the most exhilarating part of the film. Um, this isn't the first movie that had done that, and it was you know wouldn't be the last no, movie no. that would do a march of time type of thing. But Walsh like pulls out all the stops during these things. Like you know, usually it would be literal newsreel footage that you would see. You'd see troops, you know, like the, you know marching feet of troops or something, or or some very you know obvious um, imagery to get something across to the audience. Um, but here, Walsh, I mean, I was I was blown away by some of the stuff he does. He's like, there's, there's one part 
where he's talking about how, you know, during uh, Prohibition, how, um, you know, kids are starting to drink and they don't care where they're drinking. And, you know, you oh, see that, these kids that drinking. One's, that one's great. Yeah. Like, and you the, see. The hip flask. Yeah, the hip flask. <laughs> and then it culminates with, he's like, and kids were even drinking in cars. And then Walsh actually set up and filmed a car crash that happens for like two seconds. But it's, you see, it's a car ramming into a tree and falling. I mean, it's a big, you know, action moment in a March of Time thing. And then later in the film, when it goes from uh, when the stock market crashes, there's this great shot of um, like a, a, a ticker tape machine that's slowly like growing in size, right? And then it explodes, and then it explodes into like just you know like money washing away or whatever. Um, and so Walsh is really you know when he's filming the um, the narrative aspect of the movie, it's you know. It's very well done, but it's 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 not flashy or anything. But he uses these March of Time things to do these kind of little more experimental or, or try out these other things, and they're super cool. Yeah, I don't I don't know how much how much credit uh, Raul Walsh should get for that, or if they were done by somebody else within the studio. Often the kind of interstitial montage type things would be directed by somebody other than the main director. Um, I, I really don't know in this case yeah. who did it. Like in the well, uh, whoever did did a hell of a job. And the the best one of the worst best picture winners ever is uh, this movie called Cavalcade, mm-hmm. which is another kind of sweep of history kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's got this really great montage sequence of uh, of World War One mm-hmm. that was uh, directed by a different director. It was done by William Cameron Menzies, who was the great uh, production designer and. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did like Gone with the Wind and, and some other stuff, mm-hmm. but uh, by far the best thing about the film is is the little kind of montage mm-hmm. in the middle of the film. And just if you took that montage out, uh, that would be a worthy Best Picture winner. Yeah, if you just like delete everything else out of Cavalcade. Sure. Um, but anyway, yeah, uh, Walsh Walsh is is terrific just in general. He's he's one of those uh, Hollywood directors who doesn't stick out. As having like a, a really obvious style, like a, a Hitchcock or an Orson Welles will. But if you you watch enough of his movies, you get you get a sense of his sensibility as a, as a director, uh, kind of like a Howard Hawks or or John Ford. Sure. Yeah, I've only seen I you know he's got a lot of credits to his name, so I can't you know I can't say for sure, but I'm pretty certain I've only seen this um, and White Heat, and I, I love both of them. I think they're both fantastic um, pictures. Well, uh, with uh, for Raul Walsh films um, with, with Cagney and Bogart, uh, I definitely recommend High Sierra, which he did the next year. Uh, and then also for a, a different side of James Cagney, uh, The Strawberry Blonde, which is a, a kind of a romantic... Uh, comedy drama set around the turn of the century with uh, Cagney playing like a guy who really wants to be a dentist and marry Rita Hayworth and then mm. realizes that maybe, you know, things his dream isn't all it's cracked up to be. Rita Hayworth is a pretty good dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his alternative is Olivia de Havilland. Oh, I, I think I'd go with Orson Welles here on this one. Even though that didn't work out so well, but what you gonna do? Um, <laughs> the script here too, though, is uh, is really fun. Like there, you know, I didn't write down any specific uh, lines, but I, I thought they were they were funny without being jokey. You know, like like they move really well and they and they fit within the context of the film. But there were a lot of things that you know um, sparked my ear. You know, and and a lot of those are spoken by Gladys George as Panama. She says some really you know great. Uh, snide remarks to certain characters in the film. 
I don't know, at one point, just some lines that I, I wrote down. Uh, when Cagney meets Priscilla Lane for the first time, he met her earlier when she was younger, but as she's grown up, she he met awesome. her. Uh, uh, she, uh, he's kind of, uh, he remarks that, that she seems different. And she's like, my character has changed, hasn't it? And he says, yeah, it's filled out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would like that. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Panama asks, asks Cagney what, uh, what he sees in Priscilla Lane. And, and he says, whatever it takes to get a guy like me, she's got. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's very good. Uh, and then, and then one last uh, little exchange is I think uh, uh, Kegney is talking to to Bogart and and Panama, and, and he says, "I trust my friends," and then leaves the room. And Bogart says to to Panama, "He's a sucker. I don't trust mine." And Panama says, well, "That's natural. They don't trust you." Yeah. See, that's why. And then one 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 last one is just it's a it's not original to the film, but it's just a, a line that I love, which is uh, somebody tells somebody you're talking through your hat. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah, it's a great, it's a great movie. I, I think it's fantastic. I don't think there's a, a weak link in the. Th- I mean, I think Priscilla Lane, she, she doesn't sell what she's there to sell. I don't buy it. Um, but that's okay because you know, unlike you, where you had the problem with with her doing her thing with the uh, Jeffrey Lynn, that makes sense to me. It works, um, and I think this movie's just baffo. So of the the two we watched this week, which this one, all the way, yeah, I agree. Hey, <laughs> all right. With What's that, the matter, you? With that, uh, we're gonna listen to some more NWA. So if you've got some kids listening, fuck the police. Hey. You should totally keep that. <laughs> week did you hopefully look, did you look that up no okay <laughs> i'm familiar with the members of nwa <laughs> okay. 
hopefully you managed to, you know, protect your kids from traumatization before before Mike yelled at you. Fuck the police! <laughs> uh, what is your uh, what is your movie recommendation for this uh, week? This week it's coming up quick. Uh, on Saturday, September twenty first, um, in the Los Angeles area at the Egyptian Theater, there's going to be a special show uh, called Chuck Jones One Hundred One, which is a celebration of what would be. Um, Warner Brothers animator um, and director Chuck Jones' 101st birthday, and they're just going to show a whole bunch of his best films, you know, from, you know, the Merry Melodies, Looney Tunes bunch there. And I think it's a um, it's a benefit for something. Cool. Uh, mine's uh, coming up a little further in the future, which uh, most of you will probably have to make your travel plans for the Yamagata International Documentary Film Festival. Uh, they're doing a retrospective on films with Chris Marker, the French uh, documentarian, essay filmmaker, uh, most famous for La Jette and Saint Soleil. Uh, starting, it starts on October 11th, so get your plane tickets ready. They're showing 45 of his movies, and it sounds like a blast. Holy mackerel. Yeah. All right. Yamag- Yamagata is in Japan. Oh, thanks for clarifying that. I had to look that up just, <laughs> oh, to, you, make, just you, to make sure. Okay, you looked that up. You did, didn't have to look up NWA. But no. Next week on the show, speaking of Japan, what are we going to be talking about, Sean? We're going to be talking about samurai movies. We're going to take a look at Masaki Kobayashi's Harakiri from 1962 and starring Tetsuya Nakadai. And we're also going to watch uh, Takashi Miike's recent film, Harakiri, A Death of a Samurai. It's two Harakiris on the next episode. Whole lot of suicide going on. We're also going to pick our, our Cinema Central Samurai movies, and our person of the week is going to be Akira Kurosawa, because he made samurai movies. He did! Yeah, Good and, for he's, him. and he's great. Where can people find us if they wish to do so? They can find us uh, in Federal Way, Washington. We're on a tree-lined street uh, in a... What color is your house? White. White. In a white house. You can find us. There's, there's not a lot going on down here. Uh, on the internet, if you don't want to leave your house, you can find us... Um, uh, at the georgesandershow.blogspot.com. You can find us on Twitter at geosandershow, or you can send us an email at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. So that's all for this week. Take it away, George. Fuck the police! <laughs> How much would you give for a George Sanders cover of an NWA song? <laughs> Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate 
that no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world will always welcome 